This book is recommended to anyone who does not have a debilitating fear of evil puppets. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. to the most exciting Keep It Fictional episode of the year, according to me. I am Virginia, your host for today, so I can say whatever I want. And here with my book friends from the Point Moody Public Library, we have Sadie, we have Al, and we have Corrine. And it's exciting episode today because we are going to review our favorite books of 2023. And as usual, we have kept it a secret from one another also. So I'm looking forward to finding out what kind of books are on my book friends list as much as you do, listeners. But before we talk about our top five books, as we go through our spreadsheet, our Goodreads, our story graph, looking at all the books that we have read in the year, I would love to know from my book friends, what was your 2023 reading year like? Are there any themes? Did you notice that you were in the mood for a particular thing all year long? Are there any book trends that this year that appeal to you? We're going to go with Miss Corrine first, I think, because I feel like the word art might come up. I don't know. Yes. This is a really easy question for me because I get very fixated on a particular topic and then just read about that. So of course, art books, specifically weirdly like art theft and then the economics of modern art, which I have really enjoyed, but I'm not allowed to talk about on this podcast anymore. Also kind of like a trend in my reading is the Thursday night where I challenge myself to read the book to talk about on Friday morning, which usually results in me being quite late moderately on time. And then another trend I kind of saw for myself in my reading, which was a real bummer when I was trying to prepare for today, is that I read a ton of 2022 books this year. So I'm really quite behind in that I read like all the big books of 2022 this year and had precious little to choose from for this podcast because I'd really devoted myself to that backlist. And even though Virginia said I couldn't mention it, I'm still going to mention it, all of BTS's books that they recommended. And of course, they came out with a best-selling book this summer. Well, it wouldn't be a Keep It Fictional episode if you don't mention any of those things. So, I mean, it makes sense. How about you, Al? I know you talk about a number of times that you love to consume some vampire media. How much vampire media did you consume this year? Not as much as I would have hoped, but this was a big horror year for me. So if I didn't get into vampire media, I did read a lot of horror. Four of the five books I'm going to be talking about today fall at least partly under the horror umbrella. So that should tell you something. Not sure what that says about me, except maybe I'm craving catharsis. I also found that I reread several books this year, which is probably due to craving the comfort of a familiar read. So comfort and catharsis are the twin themes I'm picking out of my reads for this year. I think this speaks to the stress of starting a new job, as well as the general stress of living in a world that's only nominally post-COVID, in the sense that the virus is still definitely kicking around and causing problems. While horror is a big theme in my reading this year, I'm also seeing a lot of hope. This too shall pass, and we will emerge from the darkness stronger than before. That's the vibe I'm hoping to bring to 2024. As BTS says in their iconic song, Life Goes On. All right, Sadie, how about your reading year? I hope there's more than just 
homework and assigned reading. I was going to start by saying, as you all know, I've had to read a lot for the podcast this year. And I don't want to say it again because I feel like I've been mentioning it over and over again, but everybody knows why. And so, yes, I'm not going to say that again. But I did get to read some books, both for the podcast and that I chose on my own, that I did really enjoy. They sometimes would get pushed to the side and renewed a bunch of times before I got to them, but I did eventually get to them. And I surprisingly read more adult books this year than YA, which is not always the case for me. I tend to read a lot of YA, as I'm sure everyone knows. And so the fact that I read, I think out of my top five, there's like three, maybe four of them are adult books. I know it's weird. It's very weird. And weirdly enough, one thing that I was looking for, and I don't know if I actually found it in my reading, was mystery. I was looking for mystery books and I wanted a really, really good mystery book. My favorite one that I read this year was not published this year, unfortunately. So again, I could not talk about it. <laughs> Similar to Green, I could not talk about it on the podcast, but was the latest in the Truly Devious series by Maureen Johnson. And that was a really good mystery. But yeah, I've been craving kind of mystery. But yeah, I think the the themes that were kind of coming up is a lot of fantasy and a lot of adult, adult-based fantasy. Yeah. So I think that was kind of my my main reading trends. And then again, I did unfortunately have to read stuff that I might not have otherwise picked, but that I did enjoy. I will say that, that I did enjoy. Sorry. You do not need to apologize. It It is good to expand. I mean, I think that this podcast has done that for all of us, has expanded our reading. And and like I said, I, I it's not that I did not enjoy them. But 4,000 weeks, Sadie, do we need to expand? Do we really need to expand? <laughs> or do we just stick with what we want? It's uh, a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, 2023 is a garbage year. It's so garbage. I feel like a garbage person. I feel like I can't do anything right. Just everything is just bad. And so I feel like that's what kind of my reading leans towards the whole year. It's just like a lot of existential crisis. That's kind of where I am at. And I think it also triggers this weird I guess an evolution, because it does that every now and then where I would love, 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 love a genre. And then I just sort of stop reading it. And that was sort of what happened this year. When I look back, I have read double the amount of literary fiction compared to science fiction, fantasy, and horror combined. And that's really sad. Like, I was just, when I look at it, I was just like, oh no, what, what happened? But I could kind of see that it was slowly coming in the past couple of years. So yeah, so it's it's bad. And um, I don't know, I, I felt like there's some genres. I'm like, I don't know if I can pick one up again. I feel like I'm just not... I, I don't have the patience for all the things that I used to love about some of those genres. So I, I don't know what's happening. I'm I'm very concerned. But we'll see what 2024 brings. But, you know, I read a lot of great books. And also, as I mentioned, rediscovering some of those, I guess, more like not classic classics, but more modern classics or from around the world that I encounter when I was first starting university. But at that point, like my English was so bad that I couldn't like quite get them yet. So like I'm having a chance to go back and be like, oh yeah, those offers that I didn't quite understand what's happening right now. <laughs> let's let's try that again. Let's see whether I can get it now. Some of them I'm just like, I still have no, no idea what's going on. So yeah, it's been a good reading year, but it's it's garbage. I do not like 2023 and it needs to go away very, very soon. So yeah, so on that happy note, let's get into our countdown to our top five books. So what we'll do is in this episode, we will do our number three to number five picks. And then the next episode, we will reveal our top two picks plus a bunch of honorable mentions just so that we have a chance to shout out to all those other books that either didn't quite make it or the books that were not published in 2023 that we also really love and that we want everybody to know about. 
So please stay tuned for that next episode. We are going to go right into it and we are going to start with Sadie. Okay. Well, I feel like I would be a bit remiss if I did not include a Kelly Armstrong book on my top five list. Of course, of course, no one is surprised by this. This book is the first book of a series, but also like the seventh book of a series. It's one of those series that starts and has kind of six or seven books and then the characters continue on and she's actually started a new series of it. And I'm not entirely sure if you could start this series fresh without any information about the first kind of half of it. But yeah, so this this is called Murder at Haven's Rock by Kelly Armstrong. This one fits strangely and very solidly in the mystery thriller genre, which is not always something that I that I read. Um, but as people know on this podcast, I will pretty much read anything Kelly Armstrong puts out, uh, except her straight historical fiction. Did not like. I think I've said that before. Will not read it. You can always buy this volume before any of the other ones, Virginia. Always. It technically says number one. It's Haven's Rock number one. Number one. So yes. So this book is about Haven's Rock. Haven's Rock is in the Yukon. It has a population of zero. And that's because Haven's Rock is not technically built yet. It is being built. It's in the process of being built. And it is being built as a place for people to disappear. A fresh start from a life on the run. So this is the town that if you have had a very, very horrible experience in your life, if you're worried about your safety, if you're trying to escape from something and start a new life, this is where you go. You go to Haven's Rock, you spend some time there, you go off the grid, and then you are able to go back to your life and maybe recreate yourself. Recreate yourself and your identity and move on with your life. Now, Haven's Rock is not the first of this kind of town, as I mentioned. And Casey Duncan and her husband, Sheriff Eric Dalton, know very much about this kind of town because they were in the first version of this town called Rockton. Sheriff Eric Dalton was in Rockton for many, many years. He grew up there. He was born there. Casey Duncan has recently come to Rockton and took it upon herself to create a safe haven in this town. And it, unfortunately, did not work. There were many problems to Rockton, one of them being the fact that it was run by a council that would accept very, very big, big bribes to allow anybody into the town, which often meant that there was a lot of murderers, there was a lot of not great people, and it usually caused, unfortunately, a lot of death in the town. But Casey and Eric are ready to start fresh. They have cut ties with the council and they have decided to build their own Rockton called Haven's Rock. Now, there's only one rule of Haven's Rock, similar to Rockton. Stay out of the forest. You're not familiar with the forest in the Yukon. You don't know what might be out there, and it's better for your safety to stay out of the forest. Now, as I mentioned, this town is not built yet, so there are no actual residents, but there are construction crew members. And when Casey and Eric are called in ahead of schedule to track down two of the town's construction crew that have gone missing, they start to get worried. When a body is discovered, they start to get even more worried. 
So I won't go into too much detail, but this is the first book of the Haven's Rock series, as I mentioned. It is a thriller. It is a mystery. It takes place up in the Yukon. It has these the characters that were developed in the Rockton series, the relationships that were developed in the Rockton series, the true kind of Kelly Armstrong sarcasm and banter that she has in between her characters, which I really, really love. So I think that's why it kind of hit on this list for me, not right at the top, but uh, it's a solid number five pick. It's just kind of similar to what Al was saying, one of those kind of weirdly comfort reads in the thriller genre where you're familiar with everything. You're familiar with the characters. You're familiar with the story. You know kind of the format that it's going to take, and it just kind of makes you feel comfortable and happy when you're reading it. So if you are looking for a thriller with a bit of wilderness to it, a bit of kind of humor to it as well, you can look into the Rockton series or you can pick up Murder at Haven's Rock and see if it is also a comfort read for you. Thank you, Sadie. I'm so glad you mentioned The Rock because I'm just like, as you're talking about it, I'm like, why does this sound so familiar? <laughs> like, am I just imagining this? Or like... Part of me is kind of convinced that she's just rewriting The Rockton series with a new name, but we will we will see if more more comes out of it. Well, I mean, like you said, if sometimes if there's a, a, a formula that works, why not? I mean, you have series that have like 40 books in them. So I feel like she's she's got a long way to go that she can she can take the story a bit further. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Is is a second one like coming out or is there like a date for that? Or It is coming out. The Boy Who Cried Bear, book number two, February 20th. All right. So I guess you'll be reading that and letting us know, I am sure, because it's a Kelly Armstrong book. All right. Thank you so much, Sadie. Okay, we're going to go over to Elle. Is that going to be the one of the non-horror book or is it a horror one? So this one falls, like I said, at least partially under the horror umbrella. And number five for me is Hellbent by Lee Bardugo, the sequel to her adult debut, Ninth House. I'm a sucker for a good urban fantasy with some horror elements and Ninth House really just sucked me in with its premise of magical societies at Yale and the outsider young woman who can see ghosts who gets dragged into this high society world as it's Dante. Spoilers for Ninth House are coming next, just a warning. So in this one, after Galaxy, Alex Stern's Virgil Darlington, her guide to the magical underworld of Yale, is sucked into hell, Alex is determined to get him back. All she has to do is find a way to get into hell, steal his soul, and get back out. Easy, right? But Alex has been forbidden from attempting a rescue, so her attempt isn't just endangering her life and her soul, it's endangering her very future at Yale. Alex has the help of Dawes, another member of the secret society left, but it's not enough. They're going to need to gather more help. And what's more, faculty members at Yale are dying, and there's probably a supernatural reason for it. So this was a fun romp of a book. I think I enjoyed Ninth House a little more than the sequel, but it was a fast-paced good time that I was able to devour in little more than a day. And, spoilers, cover your ears if you haven't read Hellbent, but this does count as vampire media. There's a vampire in it! Hellbent ups the stakes from the previous book, and we learn more about what's going on with Alex's unique powers as well, which was intriguing. I'm interested to see where the series goes in the future. So if you like Lee Bardugo's writing, but would like to sort of see what she does with an urban fantasy rather than a whole cloth fantasy world, this is definitely something to pick up. I think some of us are thinking, is this book going to show up again? Hmm. I know it's also one of the books I think Fiona really, really enjoyed. 
I think that was their most anticipated, one of the most anticipated choice. So yeah, so it's a well-loved book. And I know that um, we do our annual staff contest every year and that we get people to guess which is whose favorite book. And Hellbent was on there. And for whatever reason, everybody, I guess it's the name or the cover, they all put my name down for it. And I have never actually read that. So I do now know that I got at least one of those questions wrong. The book twin, the book twin. I feel like I now know who my book twin may have been. All right. For my number five pick, I read this book because it was nominated for the Booker Prize Award. And you know, I'm a big fan of that and the International Booker Prize. And and this year, out of the 13 long list of books, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to read this and this and this. I ended up reading one. <laughs> I'm picking only one. Little shame of that. But... But it just so happens that it is the book that won the award. So I felt like I made the right choice. Yes, I don't have to read the others anymore. No, I do. I, I will. Um, but in my number five spot is Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. This is the story set in sort of a, I, I don't know whether it would be a future island or maybe a alternative island, but it is, um, Ireland has been taken over by a totalitarian government. So there are new rules, new restrictions, roadblocks everywhere. And everyone knows someone who has been disappeared by the governments. And as you know, that is a setting that I cannot resist. It's my weird obsession book trope thing. But this is not a dystopian novel. This is not a science fiction. So please don't let this setting deter you from reading this gut-wrenching book, a story that is built around and centered on one character, Eilish. Eilish is a mother with four kids. Her husband, Larry, is a very active teacher's union representative, and he has been disappeared. Her eldest son has been drafted into the military, but he decided to go fight for the rebel forces instead. So she also hasn't seen him for a long time. Her father has dementia and is getting worse and worse, and he refuses to leave his house even though the whole country is getting more and more dangerous. And so every week she has to risk her life outside to go see him to make sure he's okay. Her sister keeps telling her, come, come to Canada. It's safe here. Please join us. But Eilish just can't give up on her family yet. And her nightmare, her attempts to try to keep her family together is getting harder and harder as the civil war breaks out in Ireland. This is a book that The Guardian thinks should be put in every policymaker's hand because this is very much a story of empathy, or as Paul Lynch, the author, says it, radical empathy. It's a story of refugees in our world, past, present, and future. It outlines all those anxieties that we have about our current political climate. And it is not science fiction. That's what Paul Lynch is trying to say. It is happening now. This is not something that happens in like some faraway country that you see on the news. This is happening here. Most of my books on the list have like a kind of an unusual narrative style so that it can try to really get us into the head of those protagonists. And in this case, you know, it's, it's a very much a stream of consciousness kind of prose. There's barely any paragraphs in it. And it's, it's beautiful. It's intense. It's intimate. I was attracted to it because of 
this kind of totalitarian government setting, but you know, I end up getting a really, really emotionally engaging stories. I am so glad that it won the award. I'm sure all the other books are just as great. I will find out. I will find out. But this is a really, really great one. So this is Prophet Song by Paul Lynch. All right, Miss Corrine, what have you got for us in your number five spot? It's so hard to kind of like choose the ranking of these. I feel like in some ways it's like very artificial, but sometimes like a book really feels like a number one book or it feels like a number five book. This one I think could kind of move up in the ranking depending on my mood. And this book can kind of be described in two images. In the middle of the border between North and South Korea, there is a rusting, bullet-ridden locomotive, a train that once traveled around a united country now sits in the middle of no man's land, a symbol of the division of a country that should be united. The second image is of a lone factory worker who is staging a sit-in and protest of their factory being shut down and all of the jobs going to a foreign land. He sits on top of a chimney stack on a catwalk as the workers below cheer him on and appreciate his efforts, his lone soul protest, alone hundreds of feet in the air. His vigil is a one-man stand against the greater forces affecting him, his family, his country, and workers all over the world. Globalization, industrialization, occupation. Three generations of this man's family have worked for the railway. Under Japanese colonial rule, where they were described as slaves with no nation, during the Korean War, and afterwards, as South Korea is rapidly changing into a world he and his fellow workers do not recognize. This is a story about workers, industrial workers. The author Hong Suk-young described this type of person, this class, treated by authors and treated by historians as historical specks of dust. And in his newest, and I'm going to call it masterpiece, Mater 210, translated by Sora Kim Russell and Jay Josephine Bay, he takes the story, the individual stories of these three generations of this laboring family, and turns it into that greater image of what has happened to his country, what has happened to laborers all over the world, and how we often find ourselves as those pieces of dust being buffeted by larger historical forces that we have no say or control in. Do you collaborate or do you resist? Do you resist and not survive? Is it more important to take care of yourself and your family or to fight for your country? All of these workers, all of these individuals who are just trying to get by struggle with these greater questions in a way that often isn't recognized by history. 
This book is an interesting mix of an oral history of family. As our our worker uh, Yi Jin Ho is on that sit-in, he begins to hallucinate and name his bottles of water after different people in his life that represent different things. His grandmother, who grew up under the Japanese occupation and had a sixth sense and saw ghosts his fellow labor movements, some of whom committed suicide under the immense pressure of things that they could not control or understand, his childhood friends, his family. It is a beautiful reimagining and an important look at these kind of industrial laborers who have this rich history, this rich labor history that ties into greater national stories that's often forgotten. Even in our own country, I think that the idea of labor movements and the people that fought for our right not to have to work seven days a week, 24 hours, was made by small people that history forgets making big sacrifices. If you are deeply interested in labor history of Korea, then this is obviously a five-star read for you. If you are looking to kind of see like a master at work really grappling with a big subject in a way that I don't think has been done before, I think you will also really enjoy it. His book, Familiar Things, was recommended by Arm of BTS. There you go, Virginia. I'm just sticking that in here. But I actually think his work at dusk is much better. And I think that this one also kind of climbs to the top of just seeing a an amazing writer grappling with something new and telling it in such a wonderful way. So Mater 210, which is the name of that locomotive that sits in between those two countries, is the name of this book. Wonderful story, beautifully told, cried buckets. Thank you, Miss Corrine. I feel like that has slowly become one of your favorite authors because you talk about their work quite a bit. And I can see why. It, I feel like you're also slowly stealing Lisa's brand of being emotionally evocative and all of that. Like, I think you're ticking over, ticking over. I, I, I'm, I'm willing to take that crown. I'm willing to take it. What I like about him is that he looks at the past and it's not with nostalgia, but there is this kind of sense of loss. It, it's not that it was better. It's just that there's something there that you miss that you don't even necessarily want to go back to. And I don't know. I just, ah, pathos. All right. Well, thank you for, I think, for fairly on-brand book, kind of. So we're going to go into our next round on number four and see what we've got. Sadie, we're going to head back to you. All right. So this book was actually one that I was not planning on reading. It was not really on my radar until our dear book friend Fiona told us that they were leaving. And so for our episode where Fiona was leaving, we each picked a book that they had either said they were looking forward to or a book that we thought would be a Fiona read. And so this is the book that I ended up reading for that episode, and I ended up really, really liking it. So I have talked about it on this podcast before, so I won't do a huge um, overview of it. But this is Vampires of El Norte by Isabel Canas. Sticking with that theme of vampire fic, Al, I'm right there with you. But I will say that if you are looking for a romanticized version of vampires, you will not find it in this book. So this book takes place in Mexico in the 1840s, and it follows the daughter of a rancher, Nina, and it follows one of her father's workers, Nestor. And one night, Nestor and Nina are 13 years old, and they sneak out of the house to look for buried treasure. 
Nonina and Esther are the best of friends. They both know that they will probably figure out some way to be together in the future because they are both madly in love with each other, even at the age of 13. However, when they sneak out of the house this night, they see something that they are not expecting. A creature. A disgusting, terrifying creature that is pale skin, no clothes, sharp teeth, just the most monstrous thing they've ever seen in their lives. And it attacks Nina, leaving her for dead. Nestor runs her back to the house, and at the scream of Nina's mother, when she shrieks, my daughter is dead, Nestor runs. He knows that he will be blamed, and so he runs and he runs, and he never comes back. Until six years later, and Nestor is called back to the ranch to fight, because the United States is attacking Mexico, and the ranch owners need to fight for their land and fight for their country. And so Nestor returns and is absolutely shocked to find that Nina is still alive. And so this is a story about Nestor and Nina. This is a story about their relationship, a story about their love, about the fact that in this world where Nina is the daughter of a ranch owner and Nestor is just a cowboy or a vaqueros, they cannot be together. They will never be able to be together in this world. And yes, there are vampires. Yes, there are these creatures that are also posing a threat to the lives of the ranchers and the lives of the soldiers. But it's more than that, that they're there in the story and the creatures are a part of it. But the focus of this story is on Nestor and Nina and on the war between the U.S. and Mexico and the fight that the Mexican people had to fight for their for their right to to live on their land and to maintain kind of that ownership of their own land. So yeah, I I really really ended up liking this book. I don't read a lot of cowboy books. Um it's not generally the the genre that I enjoy or even really am drawn to, I think is more than anything. I I don't know if I enjoy it cuz it's not the a genre that I'm usually drawn to, so I just don't read a lot of them. Um but I really really enjoyed this book. Um I love the connection between Nina and Nestor and the back and forth of Nina absolutely hating Nestor for abandoning her, but then kind of slowly warming up to him and realizing that maybe there was a bit more to the story than she realized. And the opposite of Nestor not understanding why she's not still in love with him, why she's she's alive. This is miraculous. And and he's come back and and she he just doesn't get it. Um and so it's you kind of you learn with Nestor and and Nestor does figure it out eventually. So I, I would really recommend that if you do like something with a bit of vampires, but not like the romanticized vampire, more of the horror style vampire, but also kind of a historical book and something that has a really strong basis in the relationships between the people. And that is Vampires of El Norte by Isabel Canyas. Thank you, Sadie. And I guess thank you, Fiona, for that recommendation. <laughs> All right. Let's see if El has some more vampires for us. No vampires this time, but it is another horror novel. So I'm a big Grady Hendrix fan. Ever since I picked up We Sold Our Souls, I've devoured every single one of his books I can get my hands on. So this year's new book, How to Sell a Haunted House, did not disappoint. The book follows Louise, a career-driven woman who's struggling with family problems. 
When she finds out her parents have died in an accident, she dreads leaving her daughter with her ex to go back home and deal with the house and the will. More than that, she dreads seeing her younger brother, Mark, who, unlike her, never really found success in life and has bounced from job to job, career to career, often getting fired and never quite finding his feet. There's a lot to deal with when someone dies suddenly, though, and unfortunately, Louise is going to need Mark's help to deal with it all. Of course, it's a Grady Hendrix novel, so it's not just the house and the will that they have to deal with. I really enjoyed this book, but I found it initially a little hard to read. Not because of the horror, but because of the family drama. Siblings fighting over the inheritance after the sudden deaths of their parents was written so well it felt uncomfortably real. And I'm someone who has a really good relationship with my family and especially with my brother. So it just made me kind of recoil. I was just, oh, the idea of that kind of tension and that kind of vitriol really got to me. Once the actual horror got going, it was kind of a relief, especially since we got to see more from Mark's perspective and understand why he was doing all that he was doing. When the siblings finally came together to face the supernatural threat facing them, I felt much better. This book is recommended to anyone who does not have a debilitating fear of evil puppets. Thank you, Al. I'm ashamed to say I haven't read that one yet, even though I've also read all the Hendrix books, but haven't got there yet. But I will have to now that you have talked about it. All right. So back in Decem December 2022 on Keep It Fictional, I think it was just Corinne and I that day. And I remember saying to Corinne that it's not even 2023 yet. I, I, and I may have read my favorite book of 2023 already. I wasn't wrong. And you're like, but it's on number four. What are you talking about? It's on number four, not because it's worse than the other ones, but it's just because Everybody knows I love this offer so much. I think for me, I also know that I love this offer so much. So I was expecting to love this book and I did. And so I think it was more like maybe less of a surprise than those other books in my other spots. So I think that's why it's a number four. That is all to say that I feel really, really awful that I'm putting this at number four because I love this book a lot. And as you can probably guess, I am talking about TJ Klune again. And it is in the lives of puppets. This is the author that I feel like every single time they make you care so much about those characters that you're so scared that something bad is going to happen to them. Like I find myself like just crying even when everything is fine because I'm worried. <laughs> I know that it's like something is going to be happening and I'm worried for them. So like you cry the whole way through. It's just that is the kind of books that TJ Klune writes. This one has a, his signature style kind of found family. I think because The House in the Surveillance Sea is the first one that I read, and I know Sadie and I put that as our number two spot that year. That one's always going to be the best, but I feel like this one is very, very, very close to it. This is the story of Vic and his family who lives in the forest, kind of hiding from everybody, with his father Giovanni, and also his two other friends, Rambo and Nurse Ratched. They are uh, not related, but they are a family. Vic is the only human among this family. Everybody else is a robot. And they try their best to take care of this squishy, squishy human. <laughs> so many things could happen to this squishy human, not like the others um, who are so much more resilient. And... 
Their lives change when they come across another robot in the scrapyard, a robot that has been decommissioned. And when they brought him back to life, they named him Hap, according to what's engraved on his body. And little did they know that Hap is going to change their whole life. Their secret is going to be threatened. There's sort of more like this, this very quiet, safe life away from everybody. The past is going to come back and haunt them. And of course, it's a TJ Klune story, which means there's going to be a wonderful relationship that is going to develop between these characters and between Vic and Hap. Yes, I'm talking about like a romance, but this is TJ Klune, so it's okay. That's the only person that I will tolerate a romance because TJ Klune can do no wrong. Anyway, I love this book. I think if I weren't so grumpy this year... <laughs> I think this will be much higher up on my list. But as my husband said, I have not taken my grumpy pants off the whole year. So I think that's why it is at number four. But again, quoting Vigi Schwab, because I think she has the best way to describe TJ Klune books. They are like a big gay blanket that we all need. So please pick up any TJ Klune book. You will not be disappointed. So this is In the Lives of Puppets by TJ Klune. That's my only happy one, by the way. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's all I've got for you. <laughs> all right, Corinne, what have you got? Uh, mine is also like a very basic Corinne pick. I feel like every single year since they have started publishing this person's books, one of them ends up on my best of list. Again, I think this is like the year of appreciating masters at work. I just really appreciate someone who is like like a high school essay at the beginning tells you what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, and throughout the entire book, executes it to a T. I don't need to worry about any shenanigans. I don't need to worry about any like weird twists that don't make any sense. No. A leads to B leads to C. And sometimes that is all that I want. And this particular author like just always nails it. He's here to do a closed room mystery that at the beginning of the book seems impossible and absolutely unusual. And then when by the time that they explain it, it seems totally normal. And like, how could you not see it? You foolish fool. The clues were all there. Except obviously they weren't. Um, but this one has a flute. So yeah, this is the fifth book published by my favorite publishing company or imprint, which is a weird thing to say out loud, which is Pushkin Vertigo who are very slowly going through all of Seishi Yokomizo's uh, amazing classic golden agey mystery books. This one is definitely like a throwback to like a Sherlock Holmes story, but I'm talking about like the Jeremy Brett ones, not the horrible Benedict Cumberbatch thing, where there's like a young lady who's like, parent has died mysteriously. And so she goes to the great detective with a lot of hair and oh no, there's raindrops on my notebook so i'm not going to get this name right because it's a kosuke paint splatter paint splatter daichi anyways not important none of it is important the fluffy haired detective is usually what i call him in my head she calls upon him at his office which is I, what kind of gives these books a little more more depth than kind of like your paint by numbers mystery is that they are usually set in just post-war japan so this one takes place in 1947 so it is very interesting kind of like in the aftermath of American bombing of Japan and kind of like this 
this change from imperialism into kind of like a rebuilding phase. Very interesting to kind of see how the author approaches a very classic mystery, but every once in a while, the detective will say in a shorthand, oh yeah, you know, like everyone's house is gone. And, and you kind of realize like, oh, like there's so much more historical context that you're getting from that that is kind of like wearing the jacket of a very normal, very boring kind of mystery, but there's a little bit more going. This one, again, the daughter goes because, you know, her dad died mysteriously and because it's they were having a seance in a locked room to contact their dead patriarch. Fools. Everyone knows that seances lead to murder. Every single time. And lo and behold, after they have a seance to contact the ghost of the dead patriarch, someone inexplicably ends up dead in a locked room. Again, if I was living in this kind of world, A, you never have a seance, and B, you never lock any doors. There's no point. As soon as you lock the door, you are essentially offering yourself up as a victim to the murderer. So you might as well just let it happen and be less mysterious. He comes in to investigate the really shouldn't have left my notebook out in the rain. Tsubakai house? Sure. A rich old family who a lot of stuff has been burned out. They're kind of weird. And as the novel progresses, they get weirder and deader. Again, an absolute pleasure to kind of go through if you're looking for a very classical mystery. Again, with like a little bit more going on underneath the surface, which is kind of so, it's so interesting to me. And again, you're just in the hands of a minister then you should definitely pick up, I believe this is the fifth in the series. And again, the graphic design on all of them is like irreproachably wonderful. The Devil's Flute Murders by uh, Seshi Yokomizo. Other books in the series equally as good. There's one coming up in 2024, which I think is like The Little Sparrow Murders, expected to be on my number four spot for uh, 2024. All right. So we already got a hint for our staff guessing game next year. Put that one on. That's Corrine's. Number four picks, I feel like they're all offers that have a a nice extensive back catalog that we can all go in. And I feel like we're all recommending those offers. Just pick up any books by them. I think you will be pleasantly surprised and you will love them. Our last pick for the day for this episode, it is our number three pick. Sadie, what is on your list? Okay, I'm really glad that you mentioned the TJ Klune book in your number four pick, Virginia, because I felt like you had to talk about it before I talked about it because TJ Klune is is more yours than mine. But so for my number three pick is In the Lives of Puppets by TJ Klune. So I won't go through what it is about because you just heard what it is about. One thing I would like to add is I think that, as you mentioned, House of Cerulean Sea is my favorite and it will always be my favorite. This one was definitely a second for me. I I think Under the Whispering Door was okay, but it was not the same kind of, the same feel as House in the Cerulean Sea. And I think In the Lives of Puppets went back to that feel a little bit more. And I think that In the Lives of Puppets is his funniest to date. I laughed out loud and reading it in bed would read lines to Tyler and tried not to give it away because Tyler read it after me. So I didn't want to give too much away, but I would read lines out loud to Tyler because it was just so funny. Like it, it was just hilarious. And so, yeah, so that's what I would say about In the Lives of Puppets. It, it's his funniest by far. It loosely follows the story of Pinocchio. So if you are familiar with the story of Pinocchio, it does kind of touch on some of the events in Pinocchio. But yeah, I mean, he just TJ Klune just creates the best characters and the best relationships. And, and I think that is why it is my number three spot. I remember, Virginia, you messaged me, I think, right after I put my review up on Goodreads and asked, like, did you actually like it? Did you actually? 
<laughs> and I said, yes, no, I did. I'm not going to give anything away about the end, but there was something that did not make it a five-star read for me. And that was a personal thing that I struggle with reading about. And so that is kind of why it did not get the five stars, which I feel like House in the Cerulean Sea did get the five stars from me, whereas this one didn't. Um, but no, I I really like this book. I Like I said, I laughed out loud. I, I'm pretty sure I cried. I'm sure I cried. So yeah, my number three spot, it got to number three on mine, is In the Lives of Puppets by TJ Klune. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, because it is funny. Like, I don't think I have laughed this year maybe ever. <laughs> Just at that book, because Nurse Ratchet is my favorite. And I know that you sent me a picture of Yeevee reading the book also. So the whole family has read it. She did. Yeah. Yeah. Mimi likes to read um, the books that are on, usually on Tyler's side of the like bedside table. She'll, she'll pick up his. Her current one is the uh, newest Adventure Zone one. I think she likes it because there's a lot of pictures. Not Most of the other ones don't have as many pictures. So she does like that one. Oh, Yeevee has good taste. Yeevee has good taste. We've also converted my mother-in-law. I will say that. Oh. We bought her house in the Cerulean Sea for Christmas a couple of years ago. And now she reads she reads all of the TJ Klune stuff. So exciting. <laughs> so exciting. I haven't gone into his paranormal romance yet because they have all been re-released. Ooh, one day, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. You could do it. Find, find it. find a good time. and <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. All right, Al. Uh, what is your number three pick? Up until recently, my only interaction with Martha Wells's writing had been her Murderbot series of sci-fi novels and novellas. So today I'm going to be talking about her newest fantasy book, Witch King. Witch King was my first foray into her fantasy work, and while I didn't insta-connect with it as much with her Murderbot books, I really enjoyed it still. Witch King is a lushly realized fantasy world, one that as I read, I felt like there was so much more information that I could learn about the world that wasn't making it onto the page. So I hope there's a sequel if only so I can learn more about the world. The main character, Kyasterion, is a demon. And over the course of the novel, we learn about how he came to be in the human world, inhabiting a human body, and the war that he helped to start and end to get rid of the invading hierarchs, a group of colonizers from one of the world's poles who came and began killing the local population years before. We alternate between the present, where Kai and his good friend Ziede awaken after being imprisoned underwater for an initially uncertain period of time, and search for answers as to why they were imprisoned and by whom. And the past, where we learn Kai's history and the history of the war with the hierarchs. Kai is an interesting protagonist. If you've read the Murderbot books, you'll feel a little bit of kinship with him. He has a sharp tongue and a suspicious outlook, keeps himself initially cold and distant from the others, except for Ziede. But we soon learn that this cold exterior covers a hurting but ultimately very compassionate heart. Kai has been betrayed too many times to trust easily, but he ultimately wants to see a better world rise from the ashes of the old, and that element of hope is what draws me to this book. Recommended to anyone who liked Murderbot and wants to see what else the author can do. Mother well started off doing fantasy first. She became really huge with uh, Murderbot, right? But like she's yeah, she started off doing fantasy first. So there's some of her old fantasy books are getting republished. I think either at the end of this year or early next year. But what really sort of launched her was the Murderbot series, yeah. Yeah, as we've said before, like a, a favorite of our patrons here at the library. We get a few who are very, very into, into the Murderbot. So that's great. Thank you, Al. Um, all right. So are you ready for some existential dread? Because I am. 
This is the book that I uh, talk about in the one word title episode already. So again, won't say too much about it, but it is definitely a compulsive kind of one sitting read. It's because they will pin you to the wall and they won't let you go. That's kind of how this kind of book is. And I love it because it was just so beautifully written. It really resonates with me. This is Ripe by Sarah Rose Adda. And if you remember, this is the book about Cassie who lives with a black hole. The black hole that get bigger and smaller depending on the day. And these days is getting quite big because Cassie has just moved to Silicon Valley to work for one of the biggest startup. And there she sees a lot of who she call like the believers, people who drink in every single word of the CEO, who buy into everything that they say and completely immerse themselves into this culture and lifestyle. And Cassie is wondering, like, how? How do you afford all this stuff? Like, I can barely pay rent. I have to take the bus to go to some, like, discount grocery store to buy food. And meanwhile, all of you are, like, drinking, like, buckets of coffee every day and, like, having all the fancy fruits in the cafeteria. Like, how how are you all doing this? But every day as Cassie steps into the office, she will let her fake self take over because that's the only way that she can survive. And she's quite good at that fake self, so good that it attracts the attention of some of the higher ups. And they recruited her to help in this project, a project that she is very concerned and questioned about the whole morality of this project. And as she gets deeper and deeper into this, the black hole gets bigger and bigger. This is a book that I think for anyone who needs that space, needs the acknowledgement that, hey, the world is garbage and it's okay that you're not smiling. It's okay that you don't feel happy. It's okay. And I think this is what this book does. She wrote it during the pandemic after the death of her father and you know, it's not a time where she wants people to tell her to feel hope because she doesn't have that. And so she tries to write a book to help all of us who just wanted to have some room, just wanted to have our feelings acknowledged that it's okay that sometimes you just feel like garbage and that's fine. And that's fine. And I think that's probably why this book made it onto my list because I think like many people who read the book, you will feel really kind of seen as um, you see just Cassie kind of being ripped apart, just like this beautiful pomegranate on the cover as you reveal more and more layers of her and her inner self. So it's one of those books that are very like, I mean, the stuff happened, but not really. So it's one of those like quieter book, but I think it's the quietly screaming inside type kind of book, which I enjoy quite a lot. So yeah, so this is Ripe by Sarah Rose Ella. All right, Corrine, what's on your number three pick? The last pick for the day. Yeah, mine is also a pretty quiet book where not a lot happens and yet was very deeply affecting. I think a lot of the books that kind of made it onto my list this year have like a very powerful image or kind of like a, a scene or or something that has really stuck with me rather than like the overall narrative of the story or the plot or any of the characters. There's just these like very striking images from these books that have kind of stuck with me. And for this particular one, which again is a very 
it's it's a very quiet story. It's a very simple kind of coming of age story that that not a lot happens. The characters just kind of grappling with their place in the world. But there's there's the image of the 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 statue in the square where his uncle takes him to in Colombia that's kind of like surrounded by these doves and these birds. And his his uncle is trying to teach him about the history of Colombia and his own personal history and his own trauma. And it's kind of juxtaposed against this statue that's a, that a tribute to victims and there's birds around it and tourists. And it, it's just like an image of this kind of young man struggling to grapple between like his history and his legacy and the legacy of his family and him kind of moving forward like his country is trying to move forward and just all coming together and kind of like that that image of the statue with the birds around it. And that's kind of what stuck with me along with like other powerful images from the books that I've already talked about, like the the train rusting in the middle of a place where no one goes. And so this book is is full of kind of like those very striking image, very striking images and very strong imagery, um, telling a very simple story in a very beautiful way. So this is the debut novel from Rodrigo Restrepo Montoya, which I talked about on this podcast before, which is as as Virginia said when I picked it up in a panic on my Thursday night, isn't that about soccer? I was like, oh no. Oh no, I can't read about soccer. I can't do this. Um, but it isn't about soccer. It is about, in many ways, Virginia, this links back into yours, an existential crisis. What is the point of life? What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to be kind of a, a full person with a place in the world? It's about joy and trauma and again just trying to 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 seek out in a world that doesn't make any sense in a world that is cruel and random what is your place in it it is the holy days of gregorio passos which i thought was a really lovely wonderful debut and even though it's his first book like the other books that i have read you really do feel like you're in the hands of someone who knows their craft so well and can string a sentence in, in such a way that it kind of like sends shivers down your spine writing in itself is kind of like exceptional in that one one person thinks or feels and scribbles on a piece of paper can affect such a huge emotional response in you. And when Uncle Nico passes away and kind of pens his his final letter to our main protagonist, like, I cried. I cried ugly. I mourned for Uncle Nico, even though he is not a real person. He has never been a real person and is actually just little marks on a piece of paper. But his words and his life and his message and what he was saying felt so real and were so emotionally affecting that it just kind of like brought home what power a really skillful writer can do and like the power of a really well done story. So I'm I'm really hoping that this author kind of like continues to to write more. I, I feel like they have so much to say, and I'm I'm really really wonderfully happy that they they shared this this beautiful kind of like gem of a debut novel with us. So that is my number three pick: The Holy Days of Gregorio Pesos. Thank you, Corinne. Thanks to like repeating that book, reminding all of us that we should really go read it. We should really go read it. <laughs> Yeah, so those are our number three to number five picks. So uh, next episode, um, stay tuned. We will tell you about our top two books. We'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Have a good day and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank you.